0: Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to Jonathan Cable, lecturer in sports journalism at the University of Gloucestershire. In the course of our conversation, we discuss his experiences of working within academia, the trends that have emerged within the sports media industry over the last year, and the way that Raheem Sterling has been covered by news outlets during that time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure. And if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We will be taking a week off over Christmas, but we will be back the following week with more exciting guests. Have a great break. I'm joined today by Jonathan Cable, lecturer in sports journalism at the University of Gloucestershire. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good too. I begin, as always, with a with a contextual question, so a question about how it is that you sort of came to end up in the football media. So give us a little bit of a flavour of, of of your background and, and how you ended up
1: where you are. So I have quite an interesting educational path, which is, uh, I often tell the students about it, because... I originally started off by wanting to be a geneticist. So I did biology, chemistry, and maths at A-level. Uh, did biology for a year, but couldn't specialise. Then did a, a a degree in business and information systems. Then worked at an insurance company. Um, and then did a master's in poll comms, uh, political communication. So that's where the academic bug really caught hold. And from there, I undertook a PhD at Cardiff University, all about um, media journalism studies in that kind of area cool
0: so let's talk a little bit about the the phd what was it that that led you to to want to write about media and and what was the actual topic of the phd
1: so the topic of the phd was all about protest groups and how they communicated with the wider world so what i did is i took a case study approach i looked at three different groups one was a local group who were campaigning against the demolition of a, a local pub There was also Plain Stupid and their actions against airport expansion in the UK and G20 Meltdown that was kind of like an umbrella network for various different groups who protested the G20 when they were in London in 2009, I think it was. And so what I did was I looked at their own communications, how that was received in the press, and then if their tactics had any other kind of impact and how that fed back into how they did things. So it was just really interesting to compare all of those. So how did you then move
0: from doing doctoral work on sort of broader political media communications, I guess it was, into into sports journalism?
1: So as well as working on various different projects around things like uh, Edward Snowden, so looking at the media coverage of him and his, his uh, leaks, uh, BBC Impartiality, I also worked on a project about that. But what brought me to sport was essentially an opportunity gifted to me by the head of the BA um, at Cardiff University because I was looking at it and they didn't have a sports students' module. So I created one. Uh, it was simply called Sport and Media. And it covered all the big issues, things like gender, race. Um, and I could just see how you could talk about these big topics using sport Kind of like the international language of sport itself. And then linking it to my own research, I started looking at football protests around things like, um, so Charlton, uh, you had ticket prices at Liverpool, you had the 20 is plenty down at Swansea. I just kind of like looking at how they exist compared to quote unquote traditional protest groups. And it's just kind of blossomed from there.
0: So you finished your PhD at Cardiff? Yeah. And you spent some time doing other things before you ended up at the University of Gloucestershire? Or did, how, how did your yeah. transition now?
1: I was at Cardiff, so I finished my PhD in 2012. and I was at Cardiff then working on various different projects until joining the University of Gloucestershire um, last September. So September 2017.
0: And what does your job entail at the, at the University of Gloucestershire?
1: So the degree itself uh, is very journalism-focused, so how to do it, Um, and I do the theory part because that's what my background is in. So I teach things like, so journalism in context is a a first-year module that gives students insights into the world that they're going into and what kind of impact does the wider world have on journalism itself. So uh, And that's to sports journalism students, journalism students, and magazine journalism students. So three different cohorts. And then I teach sports-specific things, things like uh, the history and ethics of sport. So that'll look at things like doping, cheating, sportsmanship. Uh, I also have a bit of a look at sports media relations and how that's become increasingly prominent. And some of our students have gone into sports media relations, so they'll work as, say, a communications officer at a football club. Um, but I also teach sports celebrity and society. So looking at how athletes have been turned into celebrities and all the positive and negatives that come with that. So for instance, having their private life scrutinized.
0: In terms of the, the actual practical side of things, and are, you, are you guys providing your students with NCTJs? Are you an accredited NCTJ provider?
1: Yes, yeah. So the course is NCTJ accredited. So what that means is it's as the NCTJ say themselves it's it's like having a, a hallmark or you know like the old uh, British standards badge kind of thing. Uh and what that does is it'll appeal to students but as well as employers. So for instance this course has been looked at uh, stringently by the NCTJ and they've said that they support it. They they give it its badge. So, and that helps students get jobs in the future because it's an accredited force. So, do you
0: have a colleague whose job it is to, to sort of sort out that side of the of the, the, the practical side of the
1: NCTJ? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we have, as well as practical modules, there'll be modules that are NCTJ specific, so things like media law, um, uh, shorthand if students want to do it. Uh, but then the guys who deliver the practical side of it there's four of them they all have skills in different areas so it all kind of feeds in
0: i would like us to sort of focus on that topic for a little moment because a lot of the people who i talk to i talk to a lot of people who have gone through the nctj so i suppose my sample size is probably somewhat skewed um in in that that direction but a lot of them complain that the nctj is outdated particularly i think this comes down to the the sort of criticism that uh, well you know we're we're doing shorthand and have to get over a hundred words a minute in order to pass. Uh, and I'm never going to use this, which sounds to <laughs> sounds to me like the classic school children thing of, "Oh, when am I ever going <laughs> to learn to use this in, in my life?" Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the on the NCTJ as a, as a sort of practical thing? Is 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 it the case that it's a little bit behind the curve? And do you think there's going to be any changes coming in that sort of area?
1: The industry moves so quickly. Is you know, the NCTJ will have. Re- uh, things that it wants students that go through its accreditation process to do, and it's as they say themselves, trying to keep up with that is probably not the easiest thing to do, but having this body and this body of resources with which to draw upon is invaluable for the students um yeah you know it's difficult for any large organization to move very quickly, especially when the industry is going extraordinarily quickly. But how we kind of get uh, get around that is our students are taught as close to the cutting edge as, as we can. Um, so, for instance, the guys who teach them the practical elements, they're all still freelance journalists. So, for instance, um, they work for The Times, The Sun, The Mirror, but also in broadcast. So... Um, one of my colleagues works for Eleven Sports, for example, um, but also someone who, who still does work for Gloucestershire Live, which is part of uh, Reach, um, formerly known as Trinity Mirror, one of their kind of like local websites. And that adds in things like how Reach work is the use of things like Chartbeat. So, how much, you know, how many impressions are you getting? How long are people reading these stories and almost tailoring the content to what the audience wants? So, yeah, pushing at the edges.
0: Yeah, it would be, and it would be fun to talk about um, the shifts and trends in media in general. Obviously, you're on the theoretical side of things. Yeah. So, I guess you have a certain sense in which you have to sort of follow what's going on in in general general media and uh, and cater your teaching tranche to, to that sort of thing. How important do you think it is for, for journalists to stay abreast of the current
1: trends? Well, it's incredibly, incredibly important because it's where the industry is headed, but it's also kind of like sport especially is where new technologies are often used first Uh, so they will try out new things so the ability to uh, maybe take a little bit of a risk on a a new product it's not true for all but some of them are trying to push at the edges but you can see that it's currently fragmenting sports media and media in general it's very much the old so-called legacy are still trying to do some of the do things the old-fashioned way for want of a better term. Whereas you have, uh, as I mentioned, 11 Sports, who are trying to be much more social media orientated. Now, they've been talking about showing football matches, but having almost a kind of shared experience through using Twitch. So people experience the game at the same time, but they're watching it on TV rather than being at the ground. Um, and then you also have things like uh, Dazen, how is it pronounced? D-A-Z-N, who are UK-based, but they don't broadcast in the UK. But what they've been doing is buying up small rights around the world, almost like trying to tailor it to different, marketing, uh, different markets. And of course, what broadcasters, newspapers, etc. now have to come up against is you've got Amazon, who are going to show Boxing Day Premier League. Um, Facebook keep talking about it. Uh, and you've got The rise of athlete media, things like the Players Tribune. So it's about, so I try and make sure that students are aware of what is happening, what's going on, uh, what kind of implications there might be from these types of things. So for instance, what's the impact of automation going to be on journalism? Are you going to need a journalist to write match reports anymore? Because you can take it off the statistics, you probably still need the human element in order to add some kind of commentary, some kind of interpretation. But it's kind of like how far will automation go? Because it'll be seen by uh, the media businesses as it might be a way of cutting costs. But then, do the audience really want that? And then it's how does journalism take in newer technologies? So, say three hundred and sixty, you know, three hundred and sixty cameras, virtual reality. augmented reality for example i was listening to uh, the media podcast on radio four the other day and they had someone from century media which is the formula one and they were i think it's century media and they were talking about almost having a virtual reality experience where you can race alongside the other cars almost like using lots of different cameras around the track so you can say play it like a computer game and say race um lewis hamilton which is like which sounds fascinating. It sounds like a much more immersive experience, but who knows how that will work. And then, of course, you've got things like esports, which don't seem to make much attention in the established media, but it's it's growing all the time. And, and you've got various players in the Premier League, also in the United States, who have set up their own esports teams, but you also have football clubs getting on board esports players as almost as a way to extend their brand into different kind of cultures so not necessarily just to play fifa but to play things like league of legends but you know they might wear an arsenal shirt for for an example
0: it would obviously be interesting to talk about social media given that much of what you will have done in your phd was on social media um, and obviously a lot of what goes on in sports media in terms of trying to react to trends is basically Outlets thinking, well, someone has said this about Facebook or Twitter, therefore we should do this. I mean, the famous example is the pivot to video swiftly, swiftly followed by the pivot away from video when it realized that what, what Facebook was saying about their, their video stats were obviously not r- right. So to, to what extent are you? hyper aware of, of sort of educating your students on issues of social media and how much of it do you think is is still a, a very basic art in terms of understanding how social media functions within the sports media
1: well you can look at things like twitter and twitter exists for many um, sports media outlets as like a broadcast tool so there's not much engagement that tends to come from individual journalists because i did research um which was published at the beginning of this year, all about clickbait and what clickbait is, but using sports media channels uh, on Twitter. So i got a friend of mine, Glenn Motter, said he helped me to collect all the tweets. And then we analysed them for things like um, pairs and triplets of words. So what kind of comes up, but also like the most popular hashtags. And you can see that it's very much skewed towards the most popular sport, football you should expect gets the most attention, but also more than that, it was the traditional top six. So the hashtags you'd have like Man United's MUFC or uh, Liverpool. So kind of focusing on the most popular clubs um, and then it'll be around things like the most popular search terms and the triplets of words were very, very interesting because it was things like um, things we learned uh, so those articles which are like five things we learned watching this while it's not outright clickbait it is so in that seed of cut, like a tantalizing uh, worm on the end of a fishing rod kind of thing it's like read this find out what we learned um which depending on which outlet you read sometimes isn't much sometimes it can be quite interesting so in terms
0: of the practicality side of things, does what sort of um, education do the students at the University of Gloucestershire get when it comes to social media? Is there a, a sort of practical module or a practical element to a module that, that will will be like, this is how you should develop a social media profile on XYZ platform?
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's also modules on how to, how to use social media to do things like uh, live tweeting, so live match reporting. So as part of one of the modules, so part of one of the... an assessment. Well, part of one of the modules was the students were taken to Villa Park to cover a live game. Um, unfortunately for their fingers, it was the 5-all against Nottingham Forest. <laughs> uh, but again, that's a good experience. So they had to uh, live blog, so say t- Twitter, for example, during the game. And then they had to write a match report afterwards. Uh, and they were given... A bit more time than established journalists. I think they were given about an hour to write their match report afterwards and submit it rather than, it's like 20 minutes, isn't it? If you're, I
0: guess if you're live if you're live blogging, yeah. it would be harsh to expect someone to write a match <laughs> report on the whistle, right? Yeah. <laughs> Give you five minutes to do it, yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, they get that kind of practical experience. Um, we also offer them lots of opportunities to do things like shadowing. So like I said, the guys all do freelancing and uh, people shadow at things like Gloucester Rugby or Cheltenham Town if it's football. But um, further afield, students are encouraged to approach uh, other journalists. And uh, one of my first years has got a, what is it? she's got a shadowing opportunity with Melissa Reddy. So you know these kind of opportunities coming up and pointing them in the right direction. It's all about getting that practical experience, building up the network. Kind of skirted around your question then, didn't I? What was the question again?
0: No, no, that was, that was fine. The question was sort of, yeah, the, the, sort of practical, the practical side of social yeah. media. Yeah, so that's covered. And you're given a, as a flavor of other things that happen outside that, so yeah, brilliant. When I spoke to you, Chris Sutcliffe of Media Voices on, on this very podcast, he argued that journalists should know the business models of their outlets, which I thought was a, a, an interesting idea that and something that I, having worked for a number of outlets, have no idea about in terms of their business models. So I was wondering if you'd agree with with, with that sort of statement and how much prep do you give your students for understanding what's going on at the business end of of, of a lot
1: of these outlets? I think it's very important that they know about the finance the makeup of the industry they're going into. So... A lot of that, I I do personally through in the first year in something like journalism in context, where um, for instance I'll talk to them about things like the you know the BBC how it's funded what the money goes to how it's produced, um, but also say the commercial model uh, and different ways of doing things. So for instance, things like subscriptions, let's say the Guardian or now the Independent. Or you stay free to air, for want of a better phrase, like um, Reach's various websites and you have advertising around the edges and what kind of impact that has on content. So, for instance, with Reach, it's all about trying to get the numbers up, whereas uh, you could argue that places like The Guardian the Independent are trying to get people to buy into some kind of ethos and a different type of quality journalism. So perhaps maybe more of an individual taste. Um, so yeah, I try and give them as broad a view of it as possible. But then I also tell them about uh, major acquisitions that have happened. And um, what's interesting is, so I started my PhD in around 2007, seven eight. So I've been teaching students for about 10 years and just seeing the shift away from... Murdoch and his media empire to for instance, you know, Verizon owned Channel Five and Comcast beat him to beat him to the purchase of that big chunk of Sky. So it's kind of like the old players are are reducing, but then you you know, Amazon owned the Washington Post and you have various other Net billionaires who are buying up media outlets. But what impact does that have? How's this all, how's this all spreading out? And of course, the advertising model, advertising online. I said Facebook and Google take about 70% of all online advertising. Um, so how are publishers going to cope in that kind of world? Are they going to start to withdraw from Facebook? Um, so I'll tell them about the algorithms as well. So how does Facebook make something appear in your feed, which they're always quite interested in? Because it's not something they necessarily think about. The way I've often referred to it is, while students now are digital natives, they're not necessarily digitally literate. In other words, they don't necessarily know how these technologies work, why they show you what they show you, and what impact that can have. Um And this kind of things is always really interesting to me, because it's just... While it often does mirror the so-called real world, it is amplified and it is so much quicker and things move so quickly um, a good phrase for it is digital wildfires and you know, the whole issue around things like fake news and how that spreads and how it often spreads faster than the so-called truth so i try and give them this major context about the world that they live in and the industry they're about to go into
0: one more question on the, on the sort of practical mm-hmm. education side of things. Um, we've already mentioned the NCTJ course and obviously your courses are NCTJ approved, but there's so much more around them than just the, the practical side of things. So. My question, I guess, would be why, why do you think doing a general journalism degree is, is more important to just, than just doing uh, a specific NCTJ course on the side? And what would your advice be to young aspiring journos on that front? Would you advise them to do the, the, the broad degree rather than just the narrow NCTJ?
1: Well, I think our courses, like you say, even though they are accredited, what they do also offer you is, I suppose you could think of it as, almost a more rounded approach. So for instance, you get the theoretical side from me, you also get the practical side from uh, my other colleagues working there. But what you also have, again, is opportunities for work experience, whether that be in the module about uh, work experience or how we point students to various opportunities that come up in different places and the links that the people we have working for us have with the industry itself so they you know so they have the ability to point people in the right direction and if you were doing that as distance learning for example i don't think you'd be able to get any of that kind of uh, collegiate relationship with with people who wrote the material or teach the material so it's that it's like a community of learning i guess um and of course you know not to be cliche but they'll make friends for life and people do end up in lots of different industries so for instance we've got students who ended up at places like the Racing Post or the Independent uh, but we've also got students who ended up at say West Brom, Chatham Town, um, Fulham's Academy as comms officers and so if you think in terms of the currency of sources and writing articles it's like knowing people already is it's just a way in like uh, you know, pushing open, pushing—I can't remember that analogy. But yeah, the the door is easier to push open, kind of thing.
0: Right. Let's move on to talk about Raheem Sterling because I was lucky enough to hear you give a paper recently at the Football Collective annual conference, and you uh, you were looking at the the differences between the way that Raheem Sterling is reported in the media over against Harry Kane. So, tell us a little bit about the the research that you found and and you pr- uh, presented in that paper.
1: So originally, I was going to do the paper just about Raheem Sterling, and then in the match that England played against Colombia in the World Cup, uh, Harry Kane steps up to take a penalty, and once he scores, the commentator he says something along the lines of, "You know, Harry Kane, World Cup top scorer, and he's one of our own." And suddenly, that little statement taken on its own might not necessarily mean very much. You know, Tottenham fans saying "He's one of our own." But then in the background, you've got lots of criticism about Raheem Sterling. So, for instance, just before the World Cup, um, front cover of The Sun said Rahim shoots himself in the foot. And the, the focus was on his gun tattoo and you know, the kind of outrage that they went into about that, going so far as bringing in um, murdered child Damalona Taylor's uh, father to comment on Rahim's tattoo and things like that. And you also had this construction of harry kane as this this professional polite patriotic uh, football hero who shows echoes from the past and it's things like um the myths surrounding 1966 and how that's often brought up in media coverage that is just particularly fascinating and sterling himself isn't he's not the first footballer to come under this kind of scrutiny uh, it has happened to footballers, both black and white. However, I would not go so far as to call it racist, but the kind of stereotypes that are played upon in certain media coverage. So, for instance, how he spent, spends his money, whereas with white footballers, it will often be indiscretions such as uh, drinking. To look at Wayne Rooney when uh, he got drunk um, in the hotel where there was a wedding while on international duty, or Gaza and his various uh, run-ins with the press. But if you look at Raheem, you can see it has echoes of, for instance, Ashley Cole. And what it seems to come down to is ideas around things like nation. So how does England see itself? You could also put into it things like loyalty. So part of that he's one of our own comes from is Harry Kane has always been at Tottenham, whereas Ashley Cole moved clubs quite acrimoniously, as did Rahim Sterling. And so you have an almost dic- dislocated view of what they do and what they're doing. Um, and perhaps they find the, th- the newspapers feel that their readers can um, identify more with someone like Harry Kane, you because know, the fan base, um, when they go abroad, tends to be predominantly white, especially England. But you can see sports teams are often representative of national identity, and um, especially, you know, what's interesting about the England team is it is a big mix of different races, different backgrounds, which also mirrors the nation as a whole. But then you get this rose-tinted view coming from 1966, where which was, you know, all the players in 66 were white, so it plays into that. And what often isn't mentioned about the myth of 66 is uh, what black people's experience was in the 60s. Which, you know, wasn't great for, to put it mildly. And you also have the cases of things like John Barnes, who's been really good speaking out on the Sterling case. Cause what's interesting is since the paper, obviously things have developed. And he said a really good phrase recently when he was talking about it and talking about how the papers have been reflecting and talking about, uh, uh the racial abuse of Rahim Sterling, how terrible it is. And Barnes said, um, uh, I have invisible bananas thrown at me every day in reference to that iconic photograph of him during a Merseyside Derby back healing a banana that was thrown at him. Um, so yeah. Then that brings up arguments around how many sports journalists are black. I mean, you could, uh, black or ethnic minorities. I mean, you can expand that to the industry as a whole. As Greg Dyke famously said about the BBC, he said it was, uh, horrendously white. However, you see the diversity in front of the camera, behind the camera, uh, it tends to be a lot lighter. so you have that kind of reflection of how the industry is constructed. Um, yeah, and can newspapers truly represent these kind of things if they've never had that experience of racism themselves? You've
0: mentioned the the current iteration of of, of Gate as, as I'm calling it. Obviously, it's different from previous iterations of of, of Sterlinggate insofar as what's happened here is that the prompt has been from the footballer himself he's come out and called out the, the media in a in a situation that actually on the face of it doesn't really seem to involve the media at all would you say that this is a turning point do you think anything will change from here it certainly feels as though it's been a watershed moment in some sense but how do you think the impact on the industry will actually go
1: what'll be really interesting to see is what happens the next time he's on the front either of the website or the newspaper of the male, or the son. Um, I mean, they're the two main ones. It's like the the Daily Mirror the other day reported on how he'd bought a dog, for instance. It's just kind of like this demonizing the banal. Uh, It's when he changes his hairstyle, for example, that becomes footage. I mean, turning point might be too grand a statement. You know, there was racism before that happened, and there's racism after. But what it is doing is it's at least putting it under focus. It's almost like, okay, time to take stock. This is how things have been covered. Um, maybe we should try and do things differently. We should try and do things differently. But what it also shows you is the potential hidden conflict that's going on in newsrooms. So, for instance, a lot of the really good reflections about it have come from sports journalists themselves. Now, to give them their dues, many of the front page stories weren't written by specialist sports journalists they were written by, say, general reporters. One of the Sun ones was even contributed to by someone whose job title is crime reporter. Um, whereas sports on the whole has been um, fairly spot on with the reflection. Maybe that's because it's the specialism, but also maintaining access. And so I, I often wonder if there's a conflict between the main newspaper's editorial, and you can, if you pull back a bit from sport and Raheem, you can look at things like the Windrush scandal, language around Brexit, um anti Muslim sentiments and um what's the other one? Yeah, Brexit Windrush Oh yeah, and Theresa May's so called hostile environment when she was home secretary. Um and you can see how newspapers are trying to reflect these kind of things towards their audience and report on these types of issues in a in a in a particular way. So you only had the other day, you had was it the sun? talking about it's um, talking about its coverage and the editorial was saying that uh, race has nothing to do with it and yet the one of their chief sports writers Dave Kidd was like you know while well, the intention might not be to write these kind of uh, critiques about someone it can, it does feed into racist sentiment you know here's this young wealthy black man who uh, those white fans at Chelsea for instance can't necessarily identify with you know and what comes out is uh the academic term would be othering you know painted as this this alien other um and because of the type of coverage that's happening this alien other is scrutinized it's negative it's it's pushed on him i did a little search earlier today and the first mention in the Sun of rahim sterling comes from 2010 when he was bought by uh, rafa benitez and he was 15 16 at the time but the spotlight put on him is kind of towards the end of 2014, 2015, when they do things like, um, it was the, the shisha pictures. So he was out smoking shisha and other things like he bought, um, he bought a car, man buys car, but it becomes, it becomes news rather than just his sporting prowess. Uh, the news is surrounded around things in his private life. Now coming back to Harry Kane. His private life is very, very rarely scrutinised in such a way. It's like I'm sure you know he earns well. I'm sure he has a nice car and a nice house, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that's not on the front page of a website. You know, for instance, the, the Mail Online is the world's most read English news website. Uh, so Harry Kane is looked at more for his football than he is for his private life. So you have that imbalance. So while you can't categorically say, oh, it's because of racism, you can say, this is the situation. This is the context that surrounds this kind of news. You also have how, I was about to say highly regarded celebrities are, but how high profile celebrities are and how sports people are put onto that same kind of pedestal. So, you know, because of the money in football, especially is they're like Hollywood superstars you're very rarely going to meet them in the street or anything like that. So your attitude about them is framed by news coverage. You'll never know what they're really like because you'll probably never meet them and befriend them. So you only have news stories to go on. And if the news stories, for example, are negative or say you're lazy or... uh, Was it one journalist that referred to Sterling as a footy idiot, for example? You have those kind of things out there. And while it might not be an overwhelming influencing factor, it might reinforce stereotypes already that someone thinks, um, and it will become self-perpetuating.
0: So how do you answer the question, then, is the media racist? It's a question that's being asked a lot at the moment. It's a tricky
1: one. Possibly not overtly. It's something which businesses institutions etc is you'll get training in uh, what's known as unconscious bias so for example um is not judging people by for instance their name on a cv uh matthew saeed was talking about this the other day about how there was an experiment done where they sent out identical cvs one with uh, quote-unquote white British names, the other with black and ethnic minority type names. And even though the CVs were identical, uh, the white names were uh, shortlisted much more often than the black names. Now, that's not saying that people are inherently racist, but there's that kind of unconscious bias Uh, and it's been speculated in academia for quite a while where these kind of things might come from and you can look at you know how the world is how things are constructed power relations you know who appears in the media how they appear for example uh but also people in positions of of power uh you know where are the the prominent black voices for example you know for uh, every in right you've probably got um, ten white pundits who sit on the sofas commentating about, about football. So that kind of imbalance is there. Um, so I wouldn't say it's overtly racist, but there are some ways in which they wrap nationalism and identity up, especially English, uh, which is kind of seen as being in a, a bit of crisis It's a post-Second World War, which is something that's often um, gone to as almost like a a trope in coverage, especially when it comes to identity and the crumbling of empire. So it's, it's what is England's place in the world? And you can see that most explicitly around Brexit and what's going on. Well, the political class don't really know what's going on with Brexit. They're kind of pulling themselves apart. And it's kind of questioning what is... England's place in the world. What What's it for? What's its contribution? So, for instance, um, the Celtic nations have, in many ways, a greater sense of self. So, Wales has its language. Scotland has its, its history, um, fighting back the English, for example. And that plays a big part in Welsh and Scottish identity, whereas English just seems a bit lost, uh, and they're searching for something. And if that comes through, through something like football, is... Because football has become much more globalised, yet clubs are still local. It's it's trying to put together those two clashing types of cultures. So you know the influx of uh, foreign footballers, for example, and how that's often talked about as damaging the England team, etc., etc. And that'll all play into you know, how many of the England team at the last World Cup were from mixed ethnic backgrounds. Uh, as I said in my paper, Harry Kane could have played for Ireland through his father. That's very rarely, if ever, mentioned. However, Sterling and his birthplace in Jamaica, that does come up. So it's very much the, the binary us and them kind of thing going on. And you can see that it's systemic in some ways. So Sol Campbell gets his first managerial job, but it's right at the bottom of the pyramid. Whereas, you know, Stephen Gerrard, um, admittedly, he was involved in Liverpool's youth teams, but he's he's at Rangers. Uh, Frank Lampard, Derby County, but Sol Campbell has to start right down the bottom. That's not saying that there is explicit racism in those kind of things, but you often have, especially in football, you have networks where people will crop up again and again. For example, Mark Hughes. How does Mark Hughes keep getting Premier League jobs? You know, surely there are other managers out there who would be better than him. Um, but he keeps managing it so a, a previous paper I've done has been around uh, which also highlights this kind of crisis and identity is the phenomenon of the so-called proper football men and how they themselves construct this kind of siege mentality this this um, this narrative around things like but they don't know the league for example so criticisms of foreign coaches and managers Um and what a proper football man is, it's often English, sometimes British, uh, white, you know, quite hard-nosed, traditional, um, often seen as battlers, they firefighters increasingly. But what was interesting is post that paper, because there was people like, um, David Moyes, Sam Allardyce, uh, Mark Hughes, they were all in jobs, but by the end of that season, they had all lost their jobs. Uh, and it was it was just really interesting that Football 365 looked at the stats and when they all got into their roles is like who's standing in the way of young coaches? Well, it's the old coaches, you know, the guys over fifty. Um, but they exist almost as a community of practice, um, so they all inevitably know each other. They all they often appear as say pundits and things like that on various different shows. And they help push a particular narrative about you know, British culture. Uh, was it Sam Allardyce said on being sports? He said British coaches were uh, second-class citizens. Um, and you know Richard Keys talked about when Claude Puel went to Leicester. He said R.I.P. British coaching. It's kind of like so. Those kind of messages are out there, and they just play into a particular mindset that appeals to quite an outdated sense of what Britain. And more deeply, being English means and being in English football, what does that mean? I was
0: just going to say it's interesting because um, Graham Soonis referred to Ralph Hasenhutl as as a foreigner coming into... Into the the league, obviously, um, that sort of thing is. It wasn't even a foreign manager. It was, a, it was very clear a foreigner coming into into England, so it will take him time to learn the league, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I mean, that was yesterday. So it's still it's still going on. But yeah, it, like you say, interesting that a lot of these managers are dropping out, and, and the, the, we are seeing the demise of the proper football man uh, in that regard.
1: Yeah, you know, Harry Redknapp resorted to going and going into the jungle and winning. I'm a celebrity. <laughs>
0: Yeah, they're not even welcome in their own country anymore. They have to
1: escape to the jungle. Part of that was something that Sam Allardyce was going on about. And um, Adam Hurry, I think his name is, the guy who wrote football cliches. He was like, well, what have they taken their passports away? You know, why don't British coaches go abroad more often? Um, which, again, is quite interesting. But it's good to see that British players are starting to go abroad to get first-team opportunities. You know, like Jaden Sancho etc.
0: And I I guess that will all eventually have its impact on what you're talking about in terms of British identity. Yeah. Know, the ability of players to accept that other cultures are in fact much more similar than than perhaps the the media coverage gives.
1: I think you could look at some of the coverage of Russia, the World Cup in Russia for example, uh, almost like expressing kind of like surprise you know, judging a country by its government, which is always a bit of a mistake, it's like, oh the people here are actually quite nice. It's like, well, they're people, you know. You can decide on your government, but you can't decide on what it does a lot of the time.
0: Another facet of the Raheem Sterling case that I'd like to look at quickly is just the is the aspect of access uh, because the day the day after I think that all of this stuff happened with Sterling Tyrone Mings refused to go on talk sport and said he wasn't interested in communicating with a, with an outlet that had such problematic views on black players to what extent do you think this will become more and more of a of an issue in sports media Obviously, we've seen a lot of journalism going in-house. You've already talked to us about how the University of Gloucestershire has a lot of students going into comms departments for clubs. And we're seeing more journalists going into clubs as club journalists. With players having so much more power now, they, they have the ability to say, yeah, you know what, I don't need to do this interview. Um, I can do my interview elsewhere in, in outlets that are going to be more sympathetic to, to me. Do, do you think this is going to become a big issue in, in the future?
1: Perhaps not an issue, because if you look at comparable industries such as, um, say, Hollywood, where similarly access is very highly controlled, it'll just mean um, journalists might have to innovate a bit more or try different ways of getting stories beyond just, for example, attending press conferences. You know, A press conference has its place, but it's kind of like, what kind of story do you want to tell? Uh, but players are trying to control the message. Why wouldn't you? They've got things like endorsements. They're uh, they're almost like uh, each player is almost like a brand in and of themselves. Uh, Something which was started way back with Michael Jordan is he transcended the sport by becoming a brand, uh, which is quite interesting to see PSG having the little Michael Jordan uh, jumping logo on their shirt. So, again, it's this athlete to athlete to celebrity and what kind of impacts that having so increasing money clubs also want to they want they don't want anything damaging coming out so they're very sensitive about their own pu- public relations or if you think about certain clubs they're being used as a public relations tool um, to try and almost like I think the phrase I used the other day was sport wash so you have things going on, for example, uh, Manchester City and the whole uh, controversy around the football leagues on Der Spiegel and how you can see how teams like PSG and Manchester City are used almost as a, as a public relations vehicle to try and get a, a better perception of the nations of Qatar and the UAE. What was the question again?
0: The impact of players moderating their access.
1: Yeah. Well, you could see it already started with how players use social media and how sometimes what they do on social media becomes a new story in and of itself. Whether it be uh, Alexis Sanchez liking something. I think he liked a post by one of the Manchester clubs and that became a story. Or they use it as a platform to tell their own story, like how Raheem's been doing. And one of the interesting elements to it for me is when you look at how many followers that some of these players have, is they have a bigger reach than, say, the BBC. Um, And so they can communicate to more people who have chosen to follow them rather than maybe flicking through the channels and suddenly you see a story. And that adds a different element to it. So not only are they celebrities, brands, they're almost functioning as a media company in and of itself. So they are broadcasting to the world, you know, they are creating a particular image of how they want to be seen. And in terms of how journalists cope with this is that it's been kind of heading this way since, um, since the seventies when, when people like George Best transcended the old, you know, like working class boy done good kind of thing and became this superstar. Um, And clubs have had to learn public relations uh, cuz it hasn't it hasn't always been that and because they're global brands you, know, you look at uh Manchester United releasing their own app it's like potentially what's the figures they put on it it was hundreds of millions of fans around the world are now potentially going to get all of their Manchester United news through an app which obviously is filtered through a PR team and what that'll do is often the way journalism works best is you look at the image, you look at the reality, and you kind of drill in the middle. It's like, what else is going on here? You know, what aren't they telling you? Uncovering the things that might be in the dark. You know, what's actually happening? Um And for me, anyway, that often makes the most interesting read as well, rather than, say, uh, a press release or you know, cookie cutter quotes. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me is when that BT Sport footage was leaked, and you had um rio ferdinand and joe cole talking about i think it was carl walker and they were being extraordinarily candid because they thought the cameras were off but somehow this user um, the video no longer exists now probably because the user said they got it off a feed uh, which is obviously illegal but they were they had this uncandid conversation about carl walker But you can hear them saying it's like, oh, I can't say that on camera. I think Joe Cole said one of his mates goes to the same gym as me. But what they were talking about was really insightful and it's from a player's perspective. But if you watch quite a lot of punditry, very dry it's very uh, you know you could pick the the sayings off the shelf you know, needs more passion works hard those kind of things where it's like where's where's the analysis you know don't be afraid of talking about your mates it's kind of like what are you employed to do you're employed to reflect and interpret on the game itself which is why i think there should be an opening for um you know like a panel of journalists to be the pundits because they're like students of the game um and they could give you different types of insights. They also won't be as scared to talk about uh, football players from a a critical perspective.
0: So final question, as always, about the future of the media. I'd be interested in your assessment, and we've obviously touched on it a lot in that last question, but what are other areas that you think we will see change in, in the future of football journalism?
1: I think a lot of football journalism will get gradually more and more niche. You can see the popularity of certain podcasts, uh, especially football podcasts, how that's grown and grown and grown and how some of the creators of those podcasts have managed to monetize it and you know, taking on things like sponsorship um, and making a career about this kind of thing. Uh, but what you also have is, and this comes from in football is from the Premier League is the, the way that rights are sold and how different outlets can you know different outlets can purchase different packages is that you're almost going to get subscription fatigue in the consumer it's like how many people want to subscribe to five different outlets at you know a horrendous cost uh, to watch football that they might not necessarily want to watch and you can see how the football league is almost like trying a diy approach it's kind of like if you pay a small amount you can stream your uh, local football club So I wonder if at some point the Premier League will try and do it itself, which would be really interesting. However, they get so much money from football rights, uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But more innovation. I think as technology changes there'll be a need to stand out from the crowd. So like I said, because the rights are held by lots of different places, it's kind of like, well, why should I watch you over someone else? It's like, I know they'll be showing different games, but it's kind of like, what are you offering? I mean, Sky has attempted it with things like Monday Night Football, where they have a lot more analysis of what happened over the weekend. And that obviously appeals to a certain type of audience. And they tried it with Friday Night Football, which um was different to say the least it was a bit more informal almost like uh, i think it was trying to be like a conversation down the pub um and that wasn't as well received so it's kind of like so it'll be about like a lot of technologies we've already mentioned things like social media it'll move towards a personalize a personalizing of content so that's how it should probably move is almost like a bit more modular so you can you know you build your own package for instance um it's looking at what's going on in other industries how can you take that how can you take certain ideas around these things and shape it i was thinking to myself this morning why doesn't for instance sky just put all of its premier league coverage out for free and just charge more for the advertising couldn't that get more views, You know, more people subscribing to a general package? It's kind of like thinking beyond business as usual.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on. I've very thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Good. Thank you very much. How is the best way that people can follow your stuff and see what it is that you're producing?
1: At Twitter. I publish a lot. I'm at cable underscore J. Nice and easy. Yeah. C-A-B-L-E, as I always have to spell it out for various <laughs> places.
0: Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more exciting guests, but until then, have a good Christmas. Goodbye.